Hello, it's Kerry and Rachel. Rachel, what are you doing? You got all the good words. <laughs> Welcome to Dirty Vegetables, a podcast where we discuss hot topics in the vegan world, exposing the dirt on animal industries and sharing our complete adoration for vegetables. 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 Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dirty Vegetables and today we're going to be talking about ethical hunting. Basically today we're going to be talking about different hunting practices and it's quite hard to lump these all under one umbrella of good or bad. Different people might think all hunting practices are inherently negative and other people will think there's many many positives that come out of them so we're going to break these down a little bit in today's episode and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the pros and the cons of hunting as well as certain practices like trophy hunting and internet hunting and essentially the value of hunting largely depends on where the animals are being hunted the environment the country and whether the hunters are hunting for sport or for food and whether that food is actually a necessity So we're really looking at can hunting be used as a tool for conservation to protect biodiversity and certain habitats. But before we get stuck into it, we're going to start with our dirty ingredient of the week, which is essentially an ingredient that me and Rachel love and use quite a lot in the kitchen. And today's dirty ingredient is balsamic vinegar. And balsamic vinegar, before this, I actually didn't know what it was. I wasn't sure where it came from. But it's essentially aged grape juice that are aged in barrels with all the skins and stems used alongside it. And this eventually turns into this thick sort of viscous liquid. Um, and it's got this very sweet but strong flavour as well, that vinegary flavour that comes through. So a little bit about the history of it. So it actually originates from the areas of Modena and Reggio which is west of Bologna in Italy. And this has been being made for hundreds of years. And the name actually derives from the word BAM, B-A-L-M from Latin, meaning a substance that soothes or relieves or heals, just like BAMs in general. So in the Middle Ages and Renaissance period, they would have drank this vinegar straight with hope that it could uh, be a remedy for things like the plague. And actually the rest of the world, including the rest of Italy, didn't know anything about balsamic vinegar for for many many years until the people of Modena and Reggio saw it as a form of art and its use became symbolic and then word started to get around after very prized chefs got a hold of the recipes. So barrels were often given to families at at the birth of a child or wedding so it was this beautiful gift that would be given in Italy and they would leave these barrels to age for years and years in the attic before they would ever crack them open. So the recipe for balsamic vinegar or balsamic vinegar in general started to get around in the 80s and nowadays you when you buy it in the supermarket it actually is about 1000 times cheaper than the original. So the one you buy in the supermarket is not probably not authentic balsamic vinegar. So, Rachel, you could probably pronounce this better, but aceto balsamico tradicional. <laughs> That's a bit more Spanish. It's pretty, than... pretty good, Thanks. but tradi- you probably say pra- tra- tradizionale. Tradizionale. That's the E. Thanks. Thanks, Jack. Um, I went in the Spanish right there. So it can only be graded this traditional balsamic vinegar um, if it comes from either of those regions that I spoke about. So Modena or Reggio. Is it Reggio? Modena. Um, and Reggio and if it's made by traditional methods and aged for a minimum of 12 years so you cannot actually call it this traditional balsamic vinegar unless it's aged for 12 years which is pretty wild that is Rachel do you want to talk a bit about the nutrition? I can yes yeah so nutritionally speaking it contains antioxidants and polyphenols which are good for heart health fighting disease and is anti-inflammatory and helps blood flow. And it's also great for digestion and gut health. It helps to break down protein and therefore helps for better absorption of amino acids. And it also helps to break down fats so that you can utilize the energy rather than store it. And yeah, it's great for lowering blood sugar. So it's a good choice of vinegar for diabetics. 
And just a quick another note on balsamic vinegar. The best restaurant in the world, literally it's voted the number one restaurant in the world, is in Modena in Italy. And the head chef there is very passionate about food. And he says that my blood is balsamic vinegar and my flesh is Parmesan cheese. Because Parmesan cheese Mm. is made in that region too. So that's a little fun fact. I think his name is Massimo. But I don't know. (laughs) And... I like that. And I actually have... I'm going to write that on my quotes wall. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually have a few bottles of like truly authentic um, traditionale um, balsamic vinegar in the van at the moment because um, Octav's family came to visit us in Sweden and they're like, would you like us to bring anything? And we were like, oh, maybe some coffee and balsamic vinegar. And they went wild and they brought like 10 packets of different coffee and like 12 bottles of balsamic vinegar. It's wild. And it's like oh really... I don't think I've ever got through a whole bottle of Really? We use it a lot. Yeah, we use it a lot, a lot. I don't use it that much, but when I do use it, I love it. Like if you make a balsamic glaze, you, you normally just buy balsamic glaze, but you can actually just mix it with, um, if you're mixing the balsamic vinegar with sugar and salt mm. and just let it bubble away till it thickens and that makes mm. the glaze. Nice. It's great on like bruschetta oh. as oh, well. Yeah with tomatoes a load of balsamic garlic some basil in there proper sard oh is it actually bruschetta with sardo does it matter what the uh, bread is i don't think really no i, I think it's normally ciabatta but whatever mm, put it on sardo <laughs> <laughs> you won't regret it you won't regret it how do you use it yeah most frequently just in salad with olive oil and salt um but i have used it in bruschetta and also i'll just a lot of italian dishes like often you can use it instead of red wine if you're making a sauce it adds like a extra Mm. depth i I recommend that yeah but any italian food i would use it in a spag bowl Mm, nice it's good to add a wee bit of of depth (laughs) yeah Okay, so on to ethical hunting or unethical hunting, however you want to look at it. So basically, if we take this sort of framework that hunters would look at when they're looking at ethical hunting. So there's these six main points that are associated with it being an ethical or more ethical practice. So the first one, which is probably the most important one, is a fair chase. This is essentially stripping any technology and advancements of humanity back and returning to this predator-prey mindset. So essentially you are hunting the animal, you're tracking the prey, you're aiming and shooting it, essentially. So you're not using tracking devices or you're not using big cars to follow the prey, you're not using radios, so therefore it's a fair chase. So it's almost like looking at it as if you're in the wild and you are the predator. Although saying this, I don't know in my opinion I don't know how fair it can be if you are human is using a rifle because that is sort of advancements in technology but I guess that's maybe being a little bit pernickety because that is how humans hunt full stop so the second um the the second aspect of ethical hunting is shot placement so hunters should shoot to kill they should shoot in the heart lung area this is generally one shot and they should die Um, and using a clean shot and following the prey precisely with binoculars so you're not just going wild and shooting everywhere and anywhere you can you should practice before you actually go to shoot so maybe using like clay pigeon shooting or something like that that can um, make your aim more precise so that you know exactly where to shoot and how to shoot essentially you should be not just go out hunting when you don't know what you're really doing The third one is if the shot doesn't kill the animal, it's your responsibility to follow the animal and ensure that it doesn't continue to suffer. This is something we've talked about in the past, humane slaughter, when we're talking about industrial farming, for example. And is that really a thing, being humane and slaughter? Is that just an oxymoron? But I guess if you're shooting it in the first place and it's not dying, the most humane thing after that would be to go and follow it and kill it and not let it suffer any more than it already has the next one number four is utilizing all the meat so after you've killed it utilizing the meat and this does bring into question trophy hunting which we'll get to later on in the episode 
but not leaving the organs or any meat on the carcass. Um, on average, a family of four, if eating the meat regularly, for example, from a deer, could eat about three per year. So in the grand scheme of things, that seems like not very many animals to actually kill, especially if you're looking at it from a non-specious perspective. That's three animals. Then maybe if you're buying meat in a supermarket, that could be a lot more animals and all of the organs may not be used as well. And really, you you don't know. You don't know. Whereas if you are killing it yourself and you're using the meat, you know that it's all being used. Number five is respecting community, not showing off prized catches or uncovering the animal and not leaving the carcass by the roadside. And number six, finally, if looking after the environment, if you're camping nearby whilst you're hunting, so not cutting down trees for a fire or leaving rubbish or anything like that. So these are the main points for ethical hunting. And one question that comes up a lot when we're talking about hunting in general, and a lot of hunters will say that it promotes conservation. And actually hunting can be a benefit to the ecosystem. It can be a benefit for biodiversity in general. Now, conservation, the, the generic term is protecting, guarding and preserving. In this case, it would be biodiversity of the environment and natural resources, including protecting certain species that may go extinct. So obviously, if you shoot an animal, this is not conserving that animal. So there's definitely one mark against conservation because you are actually ending the life of the animal. However, it is possible and this is not always true. I think it's very important to underline that if you're going hunting, that doesn't mean it's conservation. But it is possible that you may help to conserve a certain species overall or the habitat or biodiversity. So one example of this. So in America, so a lot of funding actually comes from taxes. So buying the hunting equipment is taxed. Sales of guns will be taxed. And roughly 55% of funding comes from these taxes and tags for um, fishing and wildlife. So that is quite a lot. And main, the main activities that this funding actually supports is things like research on wildlife, buying land for the refuge system, wildlife management, purchasing land for hunters, hunter education programs. And all those things are very, very vital. But I would argue, me personally, that taking human money and sales into account doesn't directly help conservation. And the fact that they're trying to conserve the planet due to things that humans have probably done wrong, it doesn't really seem very, it seems quite detached in my, from my perspective. It's a very non-animal way of thinking of things. Is how I see it. So if we're pushing animals to extinction through hunting, this is a very far cry from biodiversity. For example, we talked about in a previous episode, me and Rachel, about turkeys and how wild turkeys were actually completely extinct in North America at one point because there was so much hunting of them, as well as bison. But there are times where prey populations get out of control as the predator populations are falling. Again, this could be linked to human in intervention. So high levels of prey can destroy vegetation, like deer, for example, can selectively eat certain species and damage the biodiversity of forests. They can also spread diseases such as Lyme disease, which can pass to humans. But again, I think that's thinking of humans over other animals again. So I, I don't know if that's a massive benefit for hunting in general. Like there's also, um, there are a large amount of car collisions per year. So hunting only the species surplus and still allowing the animal to maintain population and breed can be more sustainable. And probably evade lives being lost through industrial farming in general. But again, lives being lost on the road or car collisions, it's just... For me, it just completely takes out the whole point that probably... I would say the animal rights activists wouldn't care so much about that, about there being car collisions and stuff, because they would say that is those animals land anyway. And it's humans who have built the roads on it. So there wouldn't be car collisions if it wasn't for humans. So I think a lot of these reasons that are initially for conservation that people look at, again, it links back to protecting humans rather than actually protecting the animal. 
Yeah, and there are two kind of groups of people when it comes to hunting. And the first group, their thought process is that they think you should just leave nature alone and it will sort itself out in the end, even if there is disproportionate amounts of predator and prey or different species in an ecosystem. If you leave it alone, eventually it will get back to its carrying capacity, which means that it will eventually go back to equilibrium again in its own terms and we don't need to intervene with it. The other line of belief, which is more pro-hunting, is that it's actually benefiting the animals more to have this human intervention because you are reducing the suffering overall. And this is something that I found a little bit hard to wrap my head around. It's like, how can you be reducing the suffering overall if you're actually hunting the animals? But there's arguments that come up in this and it's things like starvation. So the way that ultimately, if you're looking at a chart and you're looking at the population coming up and down and ultimately stabilizing again, what's actually happening in that situation is Hundreds of animals are just dying of starvation, which is a really horrible and painful and slow way to die. Whereas a quick bullet, if it's done in a clean way to the heart or the lungs and a very quick death is probably a much more, uh, it leads to far less suffering in terms of getting that population in check. Just on that as well, they also often kill animals who are older anyway, so they're not going to breed anymore, which is a bonus. So you may be thinking that they're going out and killing all these animals and they can't breed, but often if they're killing like an old bull, for example, they can't repopulate anyway. So at least there's that. Yeah, exactly. And as Carrie already mentioned, like higher levels of deer population is also leading to higher road accidents, higher of disease, not just passing to humans, which is obviously something that we should think about, but also passing between themselves. There's this decaying disease that deers can pass between them, where ultimately they just their body just slowly starts to shut down and everything starts to decay which seems like a really gruesome horrible disease and these rates of these diseases um, increase if the population isn't kept under control and also if we think about like in a fairy tale land where the deer if you're if they're left to their own devices and then they just die of old age anyway i was very surprised to learn i was watching this video um all the sources are in the show notes where this um, environmental scientist was actually um following and surveying and observing and monitoring different causes of death of a deer herd in a part of america and the natural way for deers to die of old age is actually starvation because their teeth, um, it's clearly not a very good design, but their teeth eventually grind away so much from this constant grazing of grass and plants that they eventually can't eat anymore. So they just die of starvation. And again, that's a really, really horrible way to die. Whereas a quick bullet is, seems a lot more ethical when you're considering the options. So if the options for the deer, of for the deer, this deer herd that's overpopulated, if the options for their death are either to get hit by a car to die of starvation because of old age to get a disease or to die of starvation because there's not enough food to eat or to get shot quickly when they don't see it coming i think out of those options the latter seems the best which is a bit horrible to wrap your head around but that's kind of the the situation that we're in that's what's going on for me it feels like well obviously the thing we need to be doing is rewilding nature giving the, the land back to the animals so that we don't have this scarcity of resources for the animals to share between themselves and we don't have these um, conundrums upon ourselves that we have to intervene with but that's a fairy tale land that doesn't exist unfortunately and I'd like it to be that way but it's not that way so then it's like well considering the situation that we're in what can we do? It's actually looking at your options but also I think the important thing about that is that the hunters know what they're doing Because I reckon there's a lot of hunters out there who don't care about the ethical practices, who don't care about the environment, anything like that, or where they're hunting specifically. They may just be doing it for the kill or maybe even for the food. But if these hunters are educated on it, and that's one of the things that money goes towards with taxes from buying hunting gear, essentially, if they're educated on what animals to shoot and what's better for the environment, then that is so much more beneficial. So I think that is maybe a big goal of hunting is to actually educate people and share best practices rather than sharing the basically the kill or the gratitude or what's the word? 
the trophy or the heroism that goes with with the kill essentially a hundred percent yeah and there are some other positive considerations that can come into play if we think about hunting but before i move on to that there's just one thing that i forgot to mention which seems obvious and the other way that a deer could of course die in the wild is from getting killed by a predator animal for example a black bear or a wolf and the way that these animals um, kill the deer isn't necessarily that humane either it's certainly going to be less it's certainly going to be more painful um, than having a quick bullet to the heart Um, often wolves start eating the deer before they're completely dead so that's another excruciating way to die and I know that that's nature and the reality of the matter is nature is pretty horrific nature is actually quite brutal if we think about these things often animals starve to death and often animals eat each other alive that's what happens in nature but maybe humans can intervene in quite a meaningful way then and maybe we can actually relieve animals of some suffering and this is why it seems counterintuitive but animal welfare is actually not normally one of the number one reasons why ethical hunters hunt because they care about the animals and they want to eat meat and they don't want to source it from factory farmed conditions, which is inarguably worse. So then they they think that the best option is actually to take into consideration conservation, populations of animals and hunt in a very ethical way with a clean kill, which is, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. But yeah, a couple more points on on animal welfare to note. Yeah, so a lot of this we've already mentioned, but just to really drill it home, like if if you're hunting ethically, animal welfare has to be in the forefront of your mind. And when, when I say that, I mean that you're trying to reduce the suffering as much as possible in the animal that you're hunting. You do that with a clean kill. Um, And you do that by having well-maintained, proper equipment and training, like Kerry mentions, that you understand how to do a proper kill. And this differs from unethical practices like poaching or trophy hunting, where less care is often made and attention is made to the experience of the animal and how you're killing the animal. Um, And yeah, strict attention is paid to the hunting regulations in the area that you're hunting, the seasons, and the aim is for a balanced ecosystem. So you're thinking about you're very targeted with which animals you are going for in terms of that ecosystem to try and bring equilibrium and yes so it's thought that ethical hunting in some is said to lower the total net suffering in animals because natural forms of death are more brutal industrial farmed meat is outrageously cruel and even some ethical farms that we have out there now um, are thought to be less ethical than ethical hunting because ultimately the animals that you're hunting are on the land where they belong they're not in a farm yeah i suppose when animals are being hunted in their own environment you know they have spent their whole life in this environment they've had a a good life i suppose in compared to farmed animals who have had an awful life from their born essentially they're thrown into cages or they have very little space to move around and they get diseases as well and things like this. So they've had a horrible life the whole way till they die and we eat them. Whereas at least farmed animals, or sorry, at least wild animals, they're in the wild the whole time. You shoot them and it's over and that's kind of it. There's not all of the cruelty that goes along with farmed animals. But then I suppose... The big counter to this is that you don't need to eat animals full stop. (laughs) So that would be the big sort of vegan argument towards it. It was like, okay, well, we don't need to do either. We could just live off the land. But then there's other, obviously, problems that come along with that of killing different animals. But that's a whole other kettle of fish that we won't get into. (laughs) Yeah, but I feel like that point is a really nice segue to the next point I'm going to make, which is about indigenous practices and indigenous people. And to tell an indigenous person that they have to become vegan is something that would be completely incomprehensible to them and strip them a lot of their cultural identity and sensitivities. And they've had hunting as a, a huge part of their heritage and their culture for many, many, many generations. It's served a vital part of sustenance and they would tend to have a deep relationship and understanding of the land and ecosystem that they are a part of and hunt with a deep reverence for the animals and with an aim 
for balance and conservation. Again, this is a big part of their hunting. Um, they're thinking about conservation. They're thinking about the ecosystem and they're targeting the animals with a lot of foreth um, forethought. And indigenous groups tend to use complete animals, which minimizes waste, and they hold gratitude ceremonies for the sacrifices. And yeah, and an original design of the fishing hook. So one of the original, original fishing hooks was actually created by an indigenous group. And it was made in a way that only fully grown fish could be caught. So this, this is fish that are closer to the end of their life cycle and only caught when it would lead to balance in the waters that they were um, living within. So this differs completely from modern fishing practices where even for fishing for sport, you can buy hooks of all different sizes which can catch all different types of fish. So there's no thought or um, connection to the ecosystem of those waters that you're fishing for sport from. And don't even get me started with industrial fishing. Like it's absolutely doing irrevocable damage to the ecosystems of the waters and the seas and everything else. So this is really interesting concept as well for these indigenous practices. They, they're they not just ruthlessly taking things away. They're putting so much gratitude, love, purpose, intention into the, the, the sacrifices of the animals that they're taking for food. And, and they're only taking what they need as well, that they're not having an excessive relationship with meat. They're, they're having these big ceremonies when they catch certain meats, they use the entire animal and that will keep a community going for a long time. Yeah, so with the respect, understanding and connection to the land indigenous people have, their practices can play a positive role in wildlife conservation. Like, But however, the reality of the matter is their land has been taken from them more often than not to build industrial farms, either through growing feed or through, through growing the farms themselves, which is really horrendous because think about how different a world could be if we'd actually learned from these people and had shaped our culture and how we treated food the way that they do yeah that's fascinating it's so nice to hear that these people are taking those things into account like that is how we should all be living i feel even you know we're just so detached from food in general you know you just buy whether it's meat or anything you're just buying packets of it and packets of it and like kind of talk about this in the ultra processed episode we don't know where it's coming from. We don't know what's in our food. It's it's like just something that we need to survive where as they are us using it for, this is our energy. This is the earth. You know, we're giving back to the earth in different ways and we're taking what we need rather than exploiting the earth, which is what the planet has come to now. It's just complete exploitation, top to bottom, every country. Everyone's just fighting for money and wealth and power rather than just going back to that basic practice of actually nurturing yourself and nourishing yourself from the ground. Absolutely. Here, here. And another point to make is meat quality. And this is something that appeals to me, not that I eat meat anymore, but I think if I did, or if I was ever tempted to try something, this would really play into my mind. And this is like the meat quality that you can get from hunted animals that are living on the land is insurmountably better than what you can get from factory farm situations. So yeah, hunting can provide an, an ethical alternative to factory farmed meat. And when when hunted ethically, animals are free range, have varied diets, are drug free and experience less stress than those in factory farms and are processed responsibly. The meat is processed responsibly. And this results in meat considered higher quality in terms of ethics, taste and nutritional profile. And a key point to consider is that to hunt ethically, the meat should be caught for sustenance and similar to the indigenous practices so that as much of the animal should be used as possible. And you're not being greedy with it, basically. You're hunting what you need. Maybe you could change your approach to, or maybe ethical hunters change their approach to meat in general. It's not something that they expect to be on the table for every single meal. Maybe it's just once a day. Maybe it's just a couple times a week. Because like Kerry said before, a family of four who eat meat quite regularly would only need three deers a year. And I believe that it could be even less than that. Maybe just a deer every six months if they have more of a mindful and a reductionist approach to the meat. It would be very interesting to find out from people who have eaten hunted meat and eaten farmed meat if they can tell a difference. Like, I think that would be fascinating to see. Like, 
I just envision it being drastically different. I even imagine the color of it would be different. And obviously another thing to note is if you are eating hunted animal, it's probably going to be fresh or like if you've killed it, it'll be freshly frozen. And then when you're eating it, you know exactly how long it's been there for. Whereas you could buy meat in the shop that's been frozen for months and months and you don't know and you don't know when it was frozen and stuff. So I think the freshness would be, I think it would be a very different experience. And if you are eating it mindfully and you have, I think there would be a connection of some sort. If this is the way you look at hunting, if you are an ethical hunter and you kill it and you are grateful and sort of keep those practices in mind, I think it could be a vastly different experience of actually living off of that meat rather than buying it out of supermarket, for sure. So to bring up some controversial topics, different types of hunting that are very controversial in today's society. So there's one that I came across that I'd not heard of before, and it's called internet hunting. And it's a very unethical practice. I, I don't think anyone sort of disagrees with the fact that this isn't ethical, but it's essentially where people pay, and it can be up to like a $1,500 to shoot via webcam. So essentially they'll use a firearm which will be moved automatically around and aimed by people sitting at home. So generally it'll be like a game ranch where exotic animals are penned in. And it was this website that came out, it was called liveshot.com. And they sort of claimed that they help disabled people hunt. This is what they went to court about because the, the real hunters, shall we say, were trying to get them shut down, but they, they basically lost the battle. So this is banned, thankfully, in a lot of states and a lot of countries, but not all of them. It completely eradicates that first rule that we talked about, which was the fair chase. I mean, it's not a fair chase at all. If you've got an, a robot moving around to try and kill an animal in a pen in a different country, it's absolutely absurd. But the next one I want to talk about is trophy hunting. Now, trophy hunting is like a real buzzword that comes about because Cecil the lion that everyone's heard about in the news made like international news um, with these trophy hunters killing this lion and taking photos of it and obviously everyone well most people know that you know there's a lot of lions that are close to extinction there there's a lot of animals essentially that are close to extinction so these trophy hunters killing them literally just for the trophy you know they might not even be using the meat is very controversial now I looked into this and I was very much like whoa trophy hunting absolutely no cross that out um but when i looked into it there was an investigative story by the economist who were looking at uh trophy hunting in africa specifically namibia and they actually explored the benefits of trophy hunting for communities and i kind of rolled my eyes a bit when i saw this i'm like how are they trying to frame this but essentially they were talking to people who lived on these uh, lands where people would come and trophy hunt and there was this woman called Maxi Pia Louie who is the director of a conservation chart a conservation charity in Namibia and she was talking about how all these celebrities who are outraged about trophy hunting have literally never set foot in Africa even so there's these you know I've seen photos of like Ricky Gervais with like tops on like stop uh trophy hunting and um there was that irish comedian as well what's his name can't remember but all these celebrities like stop trophy hunting and people like protesting and all of this and they have no idea of the reality of what that really means they're just going by the headlines which i admittedly have done as well and thought that that was just an immediate no so essentially, these celebrities are making these rash claims. They're starting this movement without speaking to people in the communities. And this happens oh so often when we're talking about African communities. People internationally think they know more than the people whose literal land it is. Um, and it's a very emotional... It's almost like the white saviour yeah. thing. Uh, the white saviour <laughs> complex. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And yeah. this is like a very emotional and heated topic. It's got a lot of press coverage. So America essentially is the biggest gainer of trophies with over 30,000 trophies in 2017 alone which is insane to think about and it's not just in Africa it's all over the world um I've seen a map of it it's literally dotted about everywhere Russia parts of Europe everything but this woman who was speaking about it from the charity goes on to talk about how conservation is extremely underfunded in Africa and how trophy hunting is actually not jeopardizing the levels of animals 
So essentially, trophy hunters will come in and they'll pay big, big fees for trophy hunting. For example, if they kill an impala, it'll be $600 they'll have to pay. But if they're killing an elephant, for example, they're paying like up to like $17,000. So this money is actually going into the conservation of the land. It's sort of similar to the hunting charges I was speaking before, the taxes going back into conservation in America, for example. So Namibia, for example, this is the, the place that they were talking about, has more wildlife today than in the past at least 100 years. And trophy hunting started there in about the 1960s. So their levels of wildlife have gone up. And the biggest threat actually being the loss of habitat for the animals rather than trophy hunting. So I think most people have in their head that trophy hunters are coming in, killing all the animals, and this is why they're going extinct. But actually the problems come from people coming in and using that farm, that land for farming. That is a big, big problem. And presumably the people that are organizing these trophy hunting outings, they must be somehow connected to the land. Maybe they're like either indigenous to the land or just working on the land. They know the land, they know the animals that live on the land and they must presumably then decide which animals are best to target. They're not going to be telling the trophy hunters to come and catch the final tiger that's on the land. It would probably be, okay, we have a few more elephants at the moment, maybe you could go for an elephant, and that would give us all this money. Yeah, exactly. In the case study I was looking at, they had to have someone who worked there, who was from the land, to go out. So it's mostly Americans. They had to go with someone. They couldn't just go in their own, like free range and they would help them and point out that's an older animal you can kill them and things like that it's a really good video it'll be linked in the show notes going into it in depth and also they they often have limits on the amount of animals they can actually kill of a certain species so it's often two percent now there this is sort of one example that's working well there'll be countries that maybe don't abide by these targets and I'm sure there are places that are exploiting this trophy hunting for sure but it's interesting how us humans see one side of the story and actually you know the fact that animal populations are going up and these these cities and countries are benefiting from trophy hunting it just puts a completely different light on it and the fact is that people who are coming at trophy hunting saying that it's, it should be banned. They don't know what's going on in the land and they are not providing any alternative for the communities. So like if they lost all the money from trophy hunting, I don't know what would happen. Probably the populations would go down because the, the land would actually be bought by farm owners and then those populations would be wiped out anyway. And also in the case study I was looking at, there was actually the landowner of this specific piece of land actually has a deal with the local elders and the meat from the hunts now I'm not completely sure generally the meat will be used so there will be a lot of trophy hunters who will take the meat and utilize the whole animal and that would be I suppose an ethical way of trophy hunting but in this case they actually took the meat from the hunts and fed the local children at the school so in exchange of them feeding local children, they promise to not poach any of the animals, which is a big problem with uh, hunting in general. And there are cases in the world of trophy hunting where it only benefits the wealthy. So the wealthy people will get the money. But in this case, for example, 20% of the land is owned by local residents who can um, use the land how they see fit and then make money on it. So I just think this is a good example of like widening the lens. And this is something me and Rachel really want to do in this series is like not just believe everything you hear firsthand. And I know I've done that before. Someone just tells you something, you go, oh my God, that's awful. I can't believe it. But if there's no counter argument to something, I think you can be sure that this is probably one-sided for a reason. And I think a lot of the media tries to sort of smoke screen you like, black out what's really going on for their own gain a lot of the time so yeah I think if people are very against trophy hunting there needs to be an alternative method because these communities are making a lot of money off this and let's remember let's not forget colonialism and why a lot of these communities are actually suffering and don't have enough money because of people like 
Britain and Europe who have gone in and exploited their resources entirely. So yeah, I think just we can't look at this one-sided at all. Huh. That's very it's very interesting, yeah. Isn't it's that fascinating? So, it's so nuanced and it's such a multifaceted factored situation. There's just not a clear cut this is right or this is wrong. Like you cannot definitively say that. It's so complicated. And it, the pros for the the communities in Africa seems like an overwhelming positive and the conservation of the land ultimately and the animals that are not getting trophy hunted and are going to remain on that land that's hugely positive of course the negative is that an elephant in some light has needlessly died but then is it needless maybe there's actually a a much greater cause behind that death which yeah greater good and I've been outraged by those photos of like people lying next to like a dead tiger or these different animals like why would they do that that's so sadistic but it's actually money makes the world go round and these communities need they need money and can we blame them like for 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 finding this lucrative money maker which helps them and helps actually the conservation of the land because there's not enough governmental funds in place to actually protect the land probably like i think the tourism in general in africa a lot of it's based on like safaris and things like that or at least in the part of africa that has these exotic animals um a huge part of the tourism there is safari outings and things like that there's like the giraffe manor which i am dying to go to which is like a big house where giraffes like put their heads through the windows and you can feed them like that must bring in so much money that's the most instagrammed building like hotel in the world this giraffe manor so yeah it brings in loads of it's still animal exploitation of course it is and if they have too many giraffes they probably cull them at some point and then feed them to the lions like in different parts of the land at some point the the giraffes probably die like it's important to look like if you are looking at this from a speciesism point of view like an elephant people will be outraged about an elephant being killed they'll be outraged about a lion being killed and maybe that's because they think the populations of those are declining But an elephant, just because it's bigger and an elephant is massive and kind of cute and lovely and everyone likes it, is that any different than a fox? Because these people might not complain about foxes being killed or deer even. So if you're looking at it from that angle, there's probably not actually any different. I mean, me personally, I think hunting is ethical, completely dependent on the hunter. (laughs) If they are going with an ethical perspective, they're following those rules that I mentioned at the start And I think one of the most important things for me is that they're utilising the whole animal. Do you know what I mean? They're not just taking the tusks and putting them on their wall and then just completely leaving the meat. If they're using all of the meat and it's going to a good cause and they're not disrupting the environment or they're even potentially benefiting it, I think it could definitely be a positive thing. But I think, of course, that's maybe not always the case. But like anything... I mean, people can do it ethically or unethically, no matter, literally no matter what the practice is or what the thing is that they're doing. And just another thought I had there about the elephant is that it's actually probably more, but then I guess it's a case of how much does the elephant eat? Well, I'll make the point anyway, but I might realise that there's no logic here. I was going to say that because the elephant is so much bigger in mass that it can probably feed so many more people than, say, a herd of cows but then it might actually end up around about the same in terms of how much food they eat overall i I don't know Um, but then animals eating the food needs to be done to like replete the soil and create other it's it's just all an equilibrium that's literally what it comes down to like you need the animals on the earth to eat the plants to essentially fertilize the soil and yeah and in those climates, it's so hard to grow crops as well because it's so arid and dry. So it's like people mm. have to eat meat there. It's Then it's like, it kind of for me, it comes back to the argument of, well, we can't all be vegan because people that live in that climate cannot be vegan. They cannot. Yeah. Like, they, cannot they cannot live off a vegan diet because there's no way they'd be able to grow the variety of fruits and vegetables and et cetera that they would need to be able to live mm. off. It can literally so be a matter of need, life and death. And they need those. to eat meat. Yeah, so then that elephant 
could have very well have saved families' lives because the kids were getting it at school and then, yeah, it's, it's really, wow. Very nuanced and interesting. I have a couple more controversies and challenges to just bring up to think about in terms of ethical hunting. For example, one thing is just subjectivity. There isn't a golden standard. Of course, we've got the rules that Carrie went through at the beginning of what can constitute as ethical hunting, but there's not kind of one major governing body of ethical hunting around the world that makes sure that these standards are imposed upon hunters and make sure that there's I don't know that there's checks to make sure that people are actually maintaining these standards of ethical hunting and what and there could be a lot of cultural deviations so what's considered ethical in one country could be considered very unethical in another country so there's a lot of subjectivity it's kind of like how can we actually define that what they're doing there is ethical and what they're doing there isn't. So there is a lot of subjectivity and and just a way to come around this is to have a lot of open communication between stakeholders, people that own land, people that are benefiting from the hunting and also indigenous groups, um, different indigenous groups that are relying on hunting for their sustenance and their cultural identity and just find a way to mediate and communicate between these different groups to try and find some sort of common ground to try and make hunting as ethical as possible and education could be a huge part of this so that everyone's educated in terms of things like diversity and maintaining ecosystems so that that's really kept in check as well because unregulated hunting in terms of trophy hunting could lead to targeting animals that are literally directly endangered so it's it leads to a lot of negatives if you're hunting that animal and there's also something to take into consideration is that a lot of people that hunt they're not doing it for ethical reasons they're not doing it to feed their family they're not doing it for the environment they're actually kind of a little bit sadistic and they get a bit of a thrill out of killing and harming another living being and it's like how much should we really endorse people that will inevitably fall into this group that get into hunting and maybe it's just an inevitable evil that we're always going to have the sadistic people but unfortunately they exist and they are always going to be associated with hunting and I think that's the negative image that a lot of people have in their mind when they think of hunters Um, and they're not going to go away anywhere we can try and encourage people to be more ethical but ultimately there are always going to be these sadistic people that just get a rush from it and yeah, there, just something, this kind of is obvious, but something to just take into consideration is that there isn't always a clean death. So the aim is to have as clean a death as possible with at least, with the least suffering as possible. Sometimes that isn't the case. Um, and the animal can die if they're shot in a place that's um, like in a, in a leg or a different part of their body and they manage to get away. They can take up to weeks to ultimately die, which is a very slow and horrible way to die. So this is something that can happen. Um, and something that I read about in an article, which I didn't realize at all, was just the the treatment of the hunting dogs. So often there are dogs involved when people go hunting. And these are often quite unethically bred. So they're separated from their mothers when they're very, very young. And when they're no longer useful as hunting dogs, they're often either sold, which is quite traumatic to the dog to be separated from their primary owner. They're either sold or they're abandoned or they're killed. And also when they're hunting, they can sustain injuries from hunted animals fighting back. There's actually quite big cases of foxes, for example, fighting back when they're cornered by a dog and they can attack the dogs quite badly. I mean, I don't blame the fox for doing that at all. And also they often are in very extreme weather conditions. Like often you can hunt very big deer and moose in very, very cold conditions. And then you can hunt these very exotic animals in very, very hot conditions. And people often travel with their hunting dogs. So they're on very, very long haul flights that that can be very stressful. And they're in these very extreme temperatures that they're not used to. So it can be very stressful. So yeah, just something to take into consideration. But one thing I thought about was, well, could we really consider it ethical hunting then if they're using these dogs in these ways and they don't have much respect for them? Would that still fit into the category or is this a different type of hunting. And final point to think about is, well, how possible is it for us all to change our attitude and approach with ethical hunting? So let's say, for example, ethical hunting took off in popularity due to consideration of its benefits, but 
this wouldn't be sustainable because the demand would not match the supply. And the, the demand that we have for meat was why factory farming was invented in the first place. So it's not a blanket solution to our f- current food practices for everyone to just be like, okay, I'm going to hunt now for my meat. But what can happen is it can help people to rethink where their food has come from and how often they really need to eat meat. Can more respect be given to the animals and the environment? And can meat be treated as a special treat and not an everyday assumption? And this could be a more realistic hope that ethical hunting could have on people that eat meat. It could change their attitude perhaps to their relationship with meat rather than trying to endorse and force feed veganism or vegetarian onto people where that's just never going to happen for a variety of different reasons. Um, And perhaps it would be sustainable to a point if more and more people ethically hunted and if the ethical hunters ultimately only had the, the meat for sustenance and not for sport, then maybe there would be enough if more and more. But ultimately, if we just, yeah, if we just did a swap for the meat we eat now with deer and hunted meat instead there just there just wouldn't be enough and then we'd be in a situation where we're factory farming deer and we'd be just being the whole the same situation all over again yeah that's literally where it's come from where fact that's where factory farming came from because it got inaccessible for that amount of people to be hunting so reality is i highly doubt everyone's gonna go and start hunting (laughs) It's extremely unlikely, but I think if more people were clued into it and maybe respected the animal like that and were only eating what they killed, I think that could be very, very beneficial. If it is done in an ethical manner, of course. Okay, well, thank you everyone for listening to this episode about ethical hunting. We would love to hear what you think about hunting. Is that something that you would just never ever consider and you think it is blasphemy, it's abysmal? Or is this something that maybe is a possibility or you think, you know, if if people are doing it ethically, it could be an acceptable thing to do. I'd also love to hear what you think about trophy hunting now that we've talked a little bit about it because my eyes have certainly been opened a little bit to it. Um, And I love that when you find out new perspectives and your opinion kind of changes on it and so then if that topic does come up maybe you can have a more informed discussion about it but thank you so much for listening you can follow us on instagram at dirty vegetables with a z or you can email us any questions or any thoughts anything like that at dirty vegetables at gmail.com thanks bye Alrighty, thank you so much bye bye